And I have a feeling that at least some of you recognize that music. It's Hedwig's theme, and it is uh, a theme that recurs again and again in the films of Harry Potter. Harry Potter is the topic of part one of today's morning show. We're going to be talking about uh, the legacy of J.K. Rowling and uh, the Harry Potter books and films because of a big event that is coming up at the Kenosha Public Museum this coming weekend, a a, a two-day or two-night celebration of the legacy of Harry Potter. The event used to be called Potterpalooza, and now it's called Wizardpalooza, and it is one of the, or maybe the major fundraiser of the Kenosha Public Museum. Joining us today, first of all, is the boss, the executive director of the uh, Kenosha Public Museum, uh, Dan Joyce, and with him, uh, two members of the board of the Friends of the Museum, uh, Miles Hartley, who I believe is the president, and uh, Vicki Steger, who is the uh, secretary for the Friends of the the Kenosha Public Museum. And uh, they also happen to be fervent Harry Potter fans, Uh, and uh, so we're going to be talking a little bit about why they uh, enjoy this legacy so very, very much, and of course, we'll be talking uh, quite a lot about uh, what happens at Wizardpalooza, and uh, Dan Joyce knows nothing about Harry Potter, he tells (laughs) me. Absolutely nothing, (laughs) but my children and wife do, so it's good. There you go, but uh, Dan, of course, knows a whole lot about the Kenosha Public Museum, so we're going to kind of find out a little bit from him about uh, how the place functions and why fundraisers like Wizard Palooza are very important to the museum's well-being and ongoing functions. So, Dan Joyce, Miles Hartley, Vicki uh, Vicky, uh, Steyer, we welcome all three of you to thank the morning you. show. Yeah, thank you. Good thank morning. You. Glad you can be here, Vicki. Come in just a little closer when it's time to talk, but great to have all of you here. Uh, so this began three years ago, uh, and I'm suspecting, Dan Joyce, that this wasn't your idea if you are so blissfully ignorant on all matters related to Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm blissfully ignorant about many things, and this is just one of them. Um, no, actually, uh, this is all the fault of uh, Vicki and Miles. <laughs> we'll, take, we'll take the blame. We'll yeah, take the no, it's, uh, it was a wonderful idea. We've, we're always looking for new fundraisers of various sorts. Um, the Friends were established in... 1964 is a support organization, a membership organization and fundraising organization for the museums. And we've had a, a great membership for, for decades now and a great uh, board support, of course. They are a separate 501c3 from the, from the museum. And uh, part of their job is, is raising some money for us. We have to raise about one-third of our budget every year, and the Friends are an integral part of that. Um, so this is something that came up. They've, one of the big things we did for many, many years, and we're taking a break this year, is our art fair. Uh, we did 59 years in a row, and we're, wow. we're taking a break this year. It's 59, right? I always get it wrong, but I'll go with 59. Okay, good I think it's 59, <laughs> right. yeah. Uh, but anyways, this would have been our 60th, and we're taking a break this year because of the success of our, uh, our wizard palooza over the last couple of years. Uh, it's kind of replacing that in some way. Uh, so fundraisers are really important to the museum, and uh, they are vital for our existence. Very good. I'm just curious when this conversation first occurred, I assume, three years ago about the possibility of this being a fundraiser. Do you remember, Dan, any conversation about the fact that museums, at least by and large, deal in facts? <laughs> and uh, I think we're talking at least You're for the most part about facts. Right, right. <laughs> this is Who's to say? Please. <laughs> That's um, well, you know, it's we also deal in, in fun, uh, ah. and we also deal in entertainment, 
And you, you, I could I could make a long argument of how the books are an art <laughs> that the movies are based on, uh, as well as the movies themselves. So there's there's a bit of art in here as well, sure. uh, even though there's not a lot of facts, so to speak. Right. <laughs> well, great, great. Well, there was also a lot of excitement with the staff too. I, a lot of the staff are fans of the books and the movies, and so it was kind of a natural tie-in too with. And there was some ties in just in terms of the natural history and kind of, you know, having those those two things work together. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, of course, this couldn't possibly be a success if you really didn't have the folks at the museum as enthusiastic about oh, it absolutely. As, as, as you are. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I would love to hear from each of you uh, a little bit about your own love affair with all matters related to, to Harry Potter and, and how all of that began. And I think... Miles, you were saying that you were kind of a, a latecomer, so I want to hear that story second. Sure. Let's start with uh, Vicki, who uh, I think has been quite a fan for quite some time. Well, since the books came out, my, our youngest daughter was a freshman in high school, and their English class read the book, the first book. And so my husband and I read the book, and then the next one came out, and we were those people who stood in line at midnight at Barnes & Noble to get the book when it came out and read it all night and all that kind of thing. And we were always the first ones to get make it to the movies and, and so on, which are just beautifully done. Um, you don't have to be a kid to like them. I mean, we have people all different ages that love them. So it was kind of a natural thing. We even had a Harry Potter shower for our daughter, baby shower for our daughter, and turned our barn into Hogwarts. So a lot of the props and things we have, we had left over well, from that, that we'll use. Event. Right. I'm just curious, were you always reading the books that your daughter was reading for school, or was there something about this first Harry Potter book that, that uh, inspired you and your husband to actually do that? Or was that kind of a regular thing in, in, in your household? Actually, it's kind of interesting, because when my daughter went to Carthage, and she was reading some of the books, not those books, but um, and, and I read what she was reading, just because I hadn't read them before a lot of the things, so... Yeah, we just kind of followed along. Very good. So do you have a favorite among the books? There are seven in all. No, because they're all one story. Mm. So you think of them as one. I do think of them as one story. As one big yeah. whole. Very yeah. good. So, Miles Hartley, as I intimated earlier, you you actually, at least compared to Vicky, are a little bit more of a newcomer to all right. Of I was I was a little bit late to the party. So I, I think when the books originally came out and that that kind of that wave that hit everyone, I was a little bit older. So I was in college. I want to say when the first book came out, um, and so I kind of missed that. I, I wasn't kind of growing up with them, and I was an all also I was absolutely dead set on my love for the Lord of the Rings series. And so I kind of felt like I would be cheating on Gandalf <laughs> if, I, if I turned to Dumbledore. Um, and so I was kind of dead set against, well, I'm not, I refused to let myself, you know, enjoy them. I really didn't watch the movies. And then finally I got to a point where I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to give them a shot and I'm, I'm going to read the books. And I think I, I ripped through all seven in about two weeks and just absolutely loved them. Um, like Vicky said, it was just kind of one story that you just get so engrossed in with the characters uh, and, and just the, the, the setting of the books, um, everything about it, and just absolutely loved it. And so for me, it's neat now because I've got, I've got children who are, are getting a little bit older, and so I can enjoy those books with my kids now. And so even though I kind of get, you know, missed that first wave, I, you know, I read the first two books with my son. We read it out loud, you know, and I read to him at night and, and, just, and just absolutely loved them. So it was 
definitely a latecomer to the party, but uh, I've made up I would made up some ground on, on the original people that, that kind of got caught by that first wave. Right. And I assume you've seen all the films? Seen all the films, seen all the films, <laughs> yep. Went out and bought them, bought the collection, and so, yeah, love it. I love it. So for each of you, what would you say is what draws you so fervently uh, to the Harry Potter books and films? I mean, what is it about them that has you so enraptured? Don't you think there's something universal about them, about the story? She's a great storyteller. Right. Um, she hasn't won all those awards for nothing mm. and made other people who have been writing for years jealous. Um, <laughs> and she has a way of, when you think a story's going one way, it's really not. And you find that out in the first book. When you're used to you know, following along a path, you're probably not going there. She has some great twists and turns in right. there that just are, and, and her characters and her, um, just the way she she paints a story, you right. can see it. Well, and the world she's created is so lived in. I mean, it's so authentic. And it, and it just, I mean, every detail is just, it just feels real. And you just, you can't help but get caught up in the books when you're reading them. They're, I, they're just amazing. They are. For those of you just joining us, we're talking uh, Harry Potter today with Miles Hartley and Vicki Steger, who are both on the uh, board of directors of the Friends of the Museum, the Kenosha Public Museum. And this coming weekend, Friday night and Saturday night, Correct. is their third annual Wizard Palooza, which is a major fundraiser for the Kenosha Public Museum. And uh, all kinds of different things are going to be uh, offered up. We should mention that, uh, I mean, and it's one of the things I love about this event is that the first night is designed really with children in mind. For I mean, families. Like the whole That's family, the family. But, yes, right. That, unfortunately, is sold out. It and is. It is. Luckily. Fortunately for the museum, unfortunately for anybody who might be listening to this and would be uh, interested in attending, Friday night is sold out, but there still are a few tickets available for Saturday night's event, which is designed for adults. I'm just curious... Is it that different things, dramatically different things, happen at each of those events, or is it just more uh, that that they are in, in, intended for kind of a different group of people to attend? Because obviously there'll be a very different atmosphere at the place if it's all adults versus lots of young children running around. I think there's some differences. And, and first off, I do want to say thank you to our sponsors, um, Horizon yes. Construction and Dickow CZAC, that without the sponsorships, we would not be able to put these events on. And so... Um, they've been great um, and, and, a, and a big help and big supporters for us. But um, there are some differences, uh, and I think primarily in the classes. Um, mm. And so you've got we've got four classes for the adult event and, and three classes for the, the kids event. Um, and so the teachers kind of tailor obviously the the, the message and the in the in the lesson um, for the different groups. And right. so it's a little bit more tailored for kids um, and, and a little bit more interactive. Um, I think on, uh, I shouldn't say interactive, but hands-on maybe to some degree. Mm-hmm. For the kids' night, um, for the adults, it's a little bit a little bit more adult. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's alcohol. Right, right. And, and there is alcohol at the adult event, too. <laughs> okay. so, um, and so that makes it more fun. But at both events are just, it's great. It's a great way to show off the museums, too. Um, uh, the the uh, Care of Magical Creatures class is going to be held in the new exhibit from Curiosity to Science and kind mm. of use that as a backdrop. And so it's a great way to incorporate the museums into the night. And like I said, I mean, show off these, you know, these this beautiful building that the museum has and and uh, get to show off all the work of Dan and the staff and what they've done at the museum just to make it a, 
that's a, that's also a magical place. We talk about a, a magical place being you know the world of Harry Potter, but I, I for me personally, and I think Vicky would probably echo these sentiments that for Kenosha, I think the museums are a magical place mm-hmm. in they terms are. of what what's offered, um, the classes, uh, you know, the the art that comes through. It just uh, it really is uh, just a a great place for Kenosha to have. And three of them. There's three of them. So right, incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think if people haven't figured it out already from the from the fact that one of the classes is a care of magical creatures uh we're not talking about uh uh standard classes that might be offered at the Kenosha Public Museum but classes uh very much anchored in the legacy of Harry Potter classes taught very much as though they would have been taught at Hogwarts, so by the professors, right? So, Vicky, tell us, uh, tell us the, the the lineup of classes. Well, we have divination, and we um, have Professor Perry, who comes from England, to do those. Um, we have um, Jen, who is one of our curious of education. She will be doing herbology, I believe, and then potions will be done by her husband, um, Keith. And we have Care of Magical Creatures will be done by Nick uh, Nurworsom, who is our, edu- is our curator of the Dinosaur Museum. And it's just, it's going to be fun. We have vendors there uh, that sell only Harry Potter things. Mm. And we also have an event on Saturday for those who don't have tickets for either event. From 1 to 4 at the Kenosha Public Museum, we'll have um, the Great Hall opened up, and we'll have the vendors in there. We'll be selling butter beer, and we'll be selling um, food and things in there from 1 to 4. Right. If you've never had butter beer, it's worth coming down to it try. Is. So. Just it for is. That. Just it for that. It is authentic, that. and good. it is very good. And I know that you also have crafts and games planned, and also those are planned very much around the themes of Harry Potter. Absolutely. We have Quidditch, and we have, um, what else do we have? I think we've got kind of a a, a variation on the bags game that's got some Harry Potter ties to it. We've got a lot of crafts, especially at the kids' night, to work with Aragog, the spider activities, Mm. and um, and some light switch plates for for the adults. So it's just, just, again, it's, it's... we just try to make it as immersive an experience as possible. And so even down to the crafts, the classes, the vendors, uh, just everything about the night, mm. we try to make it as, as immersive as possible. There's plenty to do. Right. I Absolutely. mean, you'll have that two and a half, three hours full. Right. right. Uh, I know that one of the means to of making money for this, and this is, again, the major fundraiser of the museum, uh, in addition to just the ticket prices, of course, and what people purchase for concessions and so on, you also raffle off some some uh, very good prizes. We have some great prizes, including a grand year. prize that you should tell our listeners yes. about. Well, we have a grand prize that is a Hogwarts Lego set of the Hogwarts Castle, which is more than six thousand pieces. Right. Um, we have a display of it set up um, in the lobby of the Kenosha Public Museum right now. The one we're raffling off is in the set, brand new in the box. It's not, um, it hasn't been put together. So that somebody will have to put together themselves. Well, that um, would be really hard to get home if it was already yeah. assembled. So <laughs> yes, it would. It's a Handle with care. Yes, yeah. it would. But that is an amazing set. That was donated by one of our board members. And uh, there's one donated for each night. And the you know, the only way you can get one or is, you know, to be in the raffle is to be at the event. And the adult one is the only one that's not sold out so far. We also have a handmade Nimbus 2000 that we will be raffling off both nights also. But the Hogwarts uh, Lego set is really amazing. Yeah. Um, it has all the little 
people and all the professors and all Hayward's castle and our castle little right. hut and wow so is this something that people tend to show up for in costume I oh mean, yes yeah oh a lot of people do absolutely mm-hmm. and each night we do a costume contest as well and so we kind of do a for the kids we do a parade of all the kids costumes but you know I think Vicki had touched on it just on you don't have to be a kid to enjoy these books and I, I think that's very apparent at the adult night is that a lot of people do come in costume and so this is something that it really does span all ages and you know the adults get into it just as much as the kids and so um, there'll be witcher, w- witchers. There'll be witches and wizards and Hagrids and and, and Harrys and Hermiones and Professor and, McGonagall right, will have absolutely. her. So yeah, so a lot of people do you know show up in costume and it's fun I, and people love it. They just have a great time. Yeah, I find the generation intergenerational appeal to be pretty amazing and pretty fanatical, which in a good way. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're it's all crossing our fingers that we can talk Dan into showing up in costume. He's been, he's been, one, of the, he's been one of the holdouts so far. So <laughs> he'd make a good Dumbledore, right, don't you think? Twist his arm a little bit. To there get, we go. Get Dan so in so when you did the first one three years ago. Um, did you do it with any trepidation? I mean, wondering what the uh, response was going to be uh, and, and how successful was it right out of the start? We game? were shocked, don't you think? I think we how? were shocked at the response. Yeah, yes and no. I, I mean, there is such a, an audience out there that, you know, it's, it's um, because it does span all ages. There is an audience. But, yeah, I mean, it was. It sold out in 48 hours. It sold out in 48 hours. And the neat thing is we get so many people from outside the community. Um, and so people from other states, you know, people from, you know, Milwaukee, Illinois, you know, Waukegan, whatever it is, but also a lot of people that came up, I think there, I met some, some couple that came out from, um, Iowa and Missouri. Right. And so it's, it's a great way to show off again, the museums and and to show off Kenosha as well too. And, And so that was, I think that's what kind of took me off guard a little bit that it wasn't just, uh, you know, people from, from locally, it was people coming from all over the place. Who were coming to uh, see what all the fuss was about? Right, exactly right, exactly Very right. Very good. Uh, what inspired the two of you to become so active with the museum? Uh, is there something from your own family's experience and encounter with the museum, or were you doing it more out of a sort of a general sense of civic responsibility, which is the reason a lot of people go on boards? What's the story with each of you? Sure. So I grew up uh, not too far from the museum, uh, back when the only museum in town was at the old dinosaur, which is now the Dinosaur Discovery Museum. Uh, And so I took a lot of classes at the museum. I actually have a piece of pottery that I made when I was probably about seven sitting on my my windowsill at my office right now. Uh, Um, And so the museum was always an important part of my life um, in in the classes, um, and I loved my experiences there. So I I went to, you know, went to college and then went on to law school um, and came back and and, uh, came back to the community and um, was looking for ways, you know, civic-minded and looking for ways to kind of to get more involved in the community. Um, and this opportunity presented itself actually nine years ago. It's my ninth year on the board. Uh, and for me, it was no brainer. The mm. museums were always an important part of my life. Um, and so to get a chance to, to give back and to help out, that has meant a lot to me. Mm. Um, and so I say, actually, my last year as president, I've, I'm finishing off my term. Um, and then after this, I become a life member of the board. And so I, ah. um, and these last nine years have been very, very special for me. Um, to get a chance to work this closely with again Dan and his staff, and it just it's it's been fun. So I've I've loved every minute of it. And, and you have another relative who's a life member. My mother, right? <laughs> oh. She was I think she was the one that told me about hey, there's a spot on the board if you're looking. So yeah, so it's 
it's neat. It's neat wow. to have that have that connection with my mom too. Is is Very always good. fun. Yeah. So thanks, mom. Yeah. Right. Vicky. Right. Exactly. Vicky. Thanks a lot, mom. Well, I've been volunteering. I think for eight years at the museum since I retired, and um, it was just kind of one day Mike Dean, who's also on the board you know, said something about it. And I said, well, how do you get on there? And he said, well, I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> you were volunteering at the museum at the time, which I, you still do. I right. still do, yeah. I still do volunteer there, teach some classes. and you know. yeah. It's just a great place to hang out, and it's a it's a great facility. I think people in Kenosha, it's some people in Kenosha don't even know it's there. Right. And people from all over the country know it's there and all over the world. I mean, we've had people from Australia last summer came in New Zealand. I mean, people from all over the place come to see it. And um, and it's worth seeing. It's it's an amazing place. Oh, there's all kinds of things there to Absolutely. do. And, yeah, very good. Well, it's wonderful that this uh, event has been put together. So, Dan, explain uh, beyond the obvious in terms of uh, you already mentioned the fact that, that the museum needs to raise funds to cover about a third of their budget. Uh, and aside from the most obvious, which would be to uh, to keep your skilled staff paid and to keep the lights on uh, and the place heated, what else is involved in, in, in uh, a place like the Kenosha Public Museum functioning? Wow. Monetarily, I mean. Monetarily. Well, um, you know, in addition to the, the Friends of the Museum, like I said, they've been around since 1964 and have been an integral part of the museum in so many ways, including funding. Um, we have a foundation as well, uh, which is another separate 501c3. Uh, and they, are, they contribute uh, money towards our their, – their goal is to build the endowment. Uh, we have a certain amount of money that they've been building over the years. Um, and someday, uh, maybe 20, 30 years from now, um, we may uh, get off the, the tax roll and still be a part of the city, but uh, you know, be a little more independent financially that way. Uh, but every year they, they contribute uh, money to us as well, and, it's, and right now it's two hundred eighty-five thousand um, dollars, which you know you're talking about the electric and, and the gas and heat and such. Um, that's about what we spend on uh, gas and, and electricity for three buildings. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so they keep the lights on. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 becoming more and more difficult every year uh, for nonprofits in general uh, just to keep the lights on. Uh, there's there, you know, costs go up every year, uh, unfortunately, uh, but that's just a fact of life. And uh, you know, you need giving to give to increase as well uh, every year, and that's always tough as well. So it's it's always a tough job for for people like the friends uh, and our foundation to keep things going. The museum itself, uh, probably, you know, out of the, the, the nearly million dollars that we we raise every year, uh, I would say the about 70, 75% of that is earned income, uh, which we do through charging for classes and bus trips and our gift shops and mm-hmm. things like that, room rentals. Right. Uh, so that's, that's a fairly steady stream. It's the contributed portion uh, rather than the earned income that's really uh, – something you have to work at every year you have to you have to certainly prove that you're worth giving to <laughs> right well and I should think that part of what uh, is involved in in what you spend your money on is uh, sometimes acquiring things and also taking care of everything that you've acquired everything that is housed at the museum that needs to be 
preserved and studied and uh, shared with the community. Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's interesting because the bulk of our budget uh, goes towards, you know, salaries and benefits and electric bills and, you know, the usual things that people really don't associate with a museum. You know, people go into a museum and they see everything set up and it's like, oh, it's, it's just, this is all kind of magical. And you know, so the <laughs> shoemaker's elves. Uh, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's like any other business in many ways. Uh, you have all those, those constant uh, annual costs that are just there, whether you like it or not. Uh, and then in addition, we have um, costs, like you said, associated with taking care of the collections, putting together exhibits, uh, all of these things that really point towards our mission, or kind of our what I call our mission delivery, uh, hmm. is really a small part of the money that we have. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's, a, it's a very small part. And we're, we're actually pretty well funded and, and pretty well supported. Uh, but the reality is most of it goes towards salaries and electric bills. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, 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 and we should hasten to add, it's, it's a lean operation. I mean, oh, it's very I mean, lean. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So you are, you are fortunate to have people who are so incredibly dedicated to the museum and to its mission. And, uh, Absolutely. We have the, the most amazing staff. Um, you know, our, our full-time staff is just great. Our part-time staff is amazing. We only have 16 full-time for the three museums, which is very, very, very lean to run three buildings like that right. and do as much as we do, as many programs and exhibits and, and events of different sorts. Uh, so we're, we're very lucky to have dedicated people. And of course, we have a volunteer corps that's you know second to none. And we have almost 150 volunteers. They do nearly 10,000 hours every year, which is equivalent to about five and a half full-time staff. Wow, terrific. Let's uh, turn back to Miles and Vicky for a brief reminder for our listeners of Wizard Palooza, what, what's coming up, and how people can still uh, participate if they're interested. Yeah, so Friday night um, is the, uh, the family event. Uh, it starts at 5 o'clock. Um, like you had said earlier, that is sold out. Um, but if, if people are interested, if families are interested, on Saturday during the day, we'll have the Hogsmeade Marketplace. From 1 to 4. One from 1 to 4. That's open to the public. Um, there'll be vendors there, a chance to um, purchase butterbeer and popcorn, um, and they'll get to kind of see some of, the, uh, some of the decorations. But then Saturday night, we have the Adult Wizard Palooza. Um, that's from 6 to 9. And there are still some tickets available for that. And so if, if people are interested, I would... Recommend that they hustle out quick um, to, to get those tickets before they're gone. And how do they get those tickets? So tickets can be purchased directly from the museum at the front desk. Otherwise, um, they can go online, and it would be helpful if I recall what the <laughs> online... Uh, I, I think, never I, do. So right. Kenosha, I, I, just search for Kenosha Public Museum. Through the Kenosha Public Museums, their <laughs> webpage has, has a link to purchase tickets directly from that. Absolutely. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Or call on the phone. Right. And somebody can, can help phone. you on yep. the phone. And I think it's 653-4140, if Correct. I remember correctly. Yes, it correctly. is. Yep. Yep. I've announced that phone number a whole lot <laughs> over the years, and happily so. Well, I'm happy that we were able to have this conversation yeah, today with Dan Joyce, the Executive Director of the Kenosha Public Museum, Miles Hart president of the Friends of the Museum and Vicki Steger, the secretary. And I know the two of you are very excited about Wizard Palooza coming up this weekend. Thank you for uh, coming to the morning show to talk about it. Thank, Thank you, you very so much, much for yeah, having us. Part two coming up in a moment.
And for this portion of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be revisiting a topic that we broached on Friday's morning show with the author of the book called Race and Social Change. But we're going to be talking about issues of diversity and tolerance uh, well beyond the matter of race. And we're going to be speaking with someone who is uh, coming to Carthage College to uh, speak at actually two different uh, events at Carthage. He is Dr. Uh, Rahudeep Gill, and he is uh, on the faculty of, of uh, Cal Lutheran, uh, California Lutheran University, and he is someone who is known across the country uh, for uh, his uh, very interesting ideas and uh, engaging and inspiring thoughts on matters of diversity and inclusion. And his talk that he is going to be giving at Carthage on uh, Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. is titled Beyond Tolerance, Engaging uh, Diverse Worldviews on Your Campus, in which he is, I suspect, going to uh, encourage, challenge us to uh, think beyond the ordinary and the commonplace when it comes to uh, matters of of diversity uh, well beyond the, the matter of tolerance. He is the 2019 Interfaith Speaker for the Center for Faith and Spirituality. It is, it is under their auspices that he comes to Carthage. Dr. Rahudeep Gill, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, sir. It's a, it's a pleasure pleasure to be on here. I'm really looking forward to uh, meeting folks out there in Wisconsin. So tell me, at what point in your life did matters of diversity and inclusion become so important to you? And at what point, in a sense, did you make that really the heart and soul of your professional life and work? Well, I mean, I think there were several points in my life. You know, as a kid growing up in suburban Boston, uh, alongside kids who were raised by parents and grandparents who had fled the inner city for the suburbs in that phenomenon we call white flight, (laughs) Um, and then my parents, uh, you know, my immigrant Indian parents chased them uh, into the suburbs, and they didn't know, you know, all the things that were going on uh, under the under the radar uh, racially in the United States. And so I think I grew up with a certain amount of, you know, bias and, and prejudice towards somebody uh, of, of a darker complexion, somebody who's overtly religiously different. I wore a turban from a young age. Um, I think those experiences as a kid uh, opened my eyes to the uh, fact that not everyone's ready for me. <laughs> not everyone's ready for people who are different. And uh, when I was in college at the University of Rochester, I'm an East Coaster, um, although I live in Los Angeles today, I made it um, my mission to study my own tradition, my own religious tradition, the Sikh tradition. Uh, and from then, I was encouraged by my professors to pursue work in a doctoral program at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, I got my PhD from there. And then when I was at Cal Lutheran University, I realized that the academy, the higher ed academy, wasn't as diverse and open and pluralistic as I assumed it was going to be. So I like to say sometimes that I was radicalized uh, in the academy itself. So last 10 years, while I've been working here at Cal Lutheran, I've become more and more interested in issues, uh, contemporary issues, even though I'm a historian by trade. Um, I've been much more interested in contemporary issues of diversity and inclusion because of what I see uh, on the campus and because of what my students come to me uh, needing 
um, and, 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 and what I think I can provide them. Uh, so it's really a question of vocation for me, which is a deeply important Lutheran concept that I teach and I constantly learn from. So I'm really excited to come out to Carthage, another great ELCA institution, um, and, and spread my ideas. Hmm. So you are going to be talking uh, Wednesday very specifically about how this plays out on college campuses, but I assume that you've given a great deal of thought to the significance of diversion, uh, diversity and inclusion uh, when it comes to other arenas of modern life uh, that have nothing at least directly to do with higher education. How would you compare the way this plays out on at least the typical college campus, the way it compared to the way it plays out, for instance, in various civic organizations or, or places of business and, and, and so on. Are there particular challenges or issues that are part of this when we're talking specifically about a college campus? Absolutely. And um, one of the things that I'd like to clarify is that, you know, college campuses are not themselves monolithic, right? So a place like Carthage is probably really different than, uh, you know, University of Wisconsin system. Uh, within the University of Wisconsin system, there's a bunch of different types of uh, colleges and universities, right? Madison is totally different than La Crosse. Uh, so I think it really depends on where you are in the system. I think it really depends where you are in the country. Um, and so some colleges are very much like the areas around them. Some people say that colleges are sort of little inclusive bubbles in uh, uh, sort of rural America or suburban America. Um, but, you know, you find surprising things in colleges, universities that are elite and urban and supposedly cosmopolitan. Um, I think the colleges and universities have a particular challenge because um, they are themselves rooted um, in certain kinds of oppression, right? Think of how many colleges and universities um, are, are, were, were built on the backs of slaves or that included, you know, slave ownership. So, so for example, recently Georgetown in the D.C. area has had a whole sort of reckoning with its past and, and its, its history. Um, and then, you know, folks like women, Jews, uh, they've been excluded from elite colleges and university campuses for the vast majority of the time that they've existed. So it's only in the last 10, um, only in the last few decades, right, that we see colleges and universities as places that are open to people who are not uh, Christian white men. Uh, so a lot of colleges and universities are going through the growing pains of coming to terms uh, with those issues, hmm. just like the civic space, just like uh, the business space. So on the one hand, it seems like colleges and universities are these sort of radical places of inclusion and, and maybe a little bit too liberal for folks. Um, that's definitely there. You know, there's, 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 uh, there's some truth to that. At the same time, if you're an individual on a college and university campus from a community that hasn't been represented on that campus before, you can feel really alienated at, uh, at, at United States College and University. Hmm. How do you think uh, this issue has been most often misunderstood? And I am assuming that there has been a whole lot of misunderstanding about what is most important with uh, issues of of diversity and and inclusion. I think if we weren't misunderstanding this, there would be no reason for you to crisscross the country talking about it. So, what would be some of those common misconceptions or misunderstandings that, in a sense, hold us back from being as 
richly and wisely uh, inclusive as we should be? That's a great question. Uh, I think one of the most important challenges that we face is this idea of a zero-sum game, right? That there's, let's say, a pie and, you know, the majority of people own a certain part of the pie, and now these minorities are coming in, now these women are coming in, these lesbians want a piece of the pie, and there's less for the rest of us to eat. It's not a zero-sum game. Life is not a zero-sum game, right? Life is about uh, sharing. Life is about abundance, right? Uh, I'm a religious person. I believe that the universe, uh, the source of the universe, who you may call God or the spirit or, or the goddess, I think that creator has um, embedded abundance into the universe. And I think the more we think about these things spiritually or even humanistically, we see that there isn't one pie. In fact, uh, <laughs> there's a kitchen and there's an uh, abundant supply of, of raw materials for us to uh, build new kinds of desserts. <laughs> um, so, in other words, the more inclusive we are, the more new possibilities open up for new kinds of industries, uh, new ways of thought. Um, uh, the more people who themselves might be part of the majority but not rich, uh, part of the majority but not totally, right, uh, uh, you're represented, the more there is for all of us uh, to enjoy. Life is not a zero-sum game. Diversity work is not a zero-sum game. It's about bringing voices to the table. It's about hearing those voices out and really making the best state, city, nation, world that we can together, all seven billion of us. Hmm. As you go around to college campuses, are you focused more on diversity among the student body or diversity among the faculty and staff or, or both? Are, are those really, in your mind, equal concerns and, and equally uh, cause for concern? Absolutely, they have to be, because one of the things that you know, colleges and universities do is they say, well, we want a more diverse student body so we can put you know, pictures of you know, black kids and brown kids and women and queer kids in our, in our glossies, right? But once you bring those kids to campus and you don't provide them with the assets and the tools to thrive, you don't provide them with people who are able to understand their diverse experiences, um, you're setting them up to fail, and you're setting your own college uh, or university up to not be as great as it is. So, um, but, you know, just bringing those people on campus is just one part of it, right? That's called diversity. It's just a statistic. It's just a description of we have this many type of this person, we have this many type of that person. Really what we need to be doing is changing the structures so that voices can be heard, and we have to be um, really hungry to hear uh, diverse perspectives, uh, while at the same time training each other on how to express diverse perspectives in an ever-diversifying, ever-pluralizing United States landscape. Hmm. How would you suggest that we talk about this when the topic is broached? Because I think a lot of people feel some reluctance to even venture into some of these topics for fear of framing something uh, in a way that might be either inadvertently uh, offensive or maybe might sound foolish to somebody? Or, or, or how would you have us talk about this? I don't mean in situations like you and I talking right now, but I mean in our everyday lives. I think in our everyday lives, it's important that 
um, we set up safe contexts for these discussions to happen. And by safe, I mean, you know, if we really want to get down and dirty into, you know, talking about some things that are really tough, you're going to have to allow people to say things that are going to be offensive. But everyone's going to have to agree on what the boundaries of any conversation are. And the reason that you want to have safe uh, context is that you want people to be able to feel brave enough to say things and to ask questions that they might normally not ask. So I think uh, I have an article uh, about safe spaces, brave spaces, and resilient places. So safety is one thing. Allowing people to feel brave enough to make mistakes is another thing. And then in the long term, we have to cultivate our own individual, but also our collective resilience for having difficult discourses, for having difficult dialogue. These things are going to hurt. We shouldn't fear the pain of them hurting. We shouldn't be upset that we upset somebody, right? We should expect that walking into these conversations, they're going to be tough. And that's why we have to do them. You see what I'm saying? Um, we also want at some level, some sense of care for each other. We want to be able to express some sense of sensitivity and some sense of, hey, I might not get this right, but is it okay if I say this, right? Some sense of our own boundaries and politeness um, that allow us to have civil and civic discourse. And a lot of it, the more of this that we do, the better at it that we'll get. The more that we shy away from these things, um, the worse at it that we'll get. Hmm. So what is the benefit when, for instance, a college or a university or a company or a civic organization is more diverse. Uh, for someone who is a skeptic who uh, wonders why all of this is worth the, the fuss, the trouble, uh, in what way is an organization or company or school better by being more diverse? Well, let me say something controversial. I side with the skeptics. The data shows that diversity actually decreases trust in organizations. Diversity in and of itself decreases trust and interactions in neighborhoods. So diversity in and of itself is not the goal. Engagement of diversity, inclusion of voices, right? Uh, what we call pluralism, the active engagement of diverse perspectives, according to Harvard scholar Diana Eck, is what we need uh, racially, ethnically, in terms of gender, and in terms of religion, faith, and matters of worldview. What the payoff is when we engage diversity, in order to engage diversity, you've got to have it, right? But what we get when we engage diversity is a new sense of our own selves. This is something that's deeply, deeply embedded in our own humanistic history. Um, we, although, you know, some of our brains, like our brains function to, you know, understand uh, ourselves in terms of who others are, and so at first, we might be skittish about learning about others, learning about people who are not like us, who are, have not been raised uh, to look like us, to act like us, to eat, sleep, pray like us. But what we learn about ourselves and our own traditions and our own heritage in reflecting on uh, engagement across lines of difference is that we become more fully human ourselves, right? We become uh, more able to deal with the challenges of life. Now, if you're a company... This is, the, this is the argument that I make for interfaith cooperation at colleges and universities. We say that we want to you know, educate leaders for a global society. Well, 
if in the United States you have 80% of people who come from Christian or Christian-ish households, right? If you're working at a global level, that number is now going to drop to 30% of people coming from Christian households. That other 70% are going to be Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, communist, socialist. They're going to have mixed uh, religious identities. Don't you want your company or civic organization or your own children to be able to converse with people um, of who are deeply, deeply uh, different than them, but actually not that different because at the same time we share 99% of the of the same DNA across all these lines of difference. So I think there's there's a couple different arguments. You know, you can make the the cost benefit ratio argument. And I think that's a good one to make. But what the argument that I make is that we are only more fully human when we engage across lines of difference. Being in our little bubble, being in our little corner of the world. It gets boring. <laughs> Dr. Rahul Deep Gill is going to be speaking at Carthage College, including a public address, 7 p.m. Uh, at Siebert Chapel. That's 7 p.m. a Wednesday night. His talk is titled Beyond Tolerance, Engaging Diverse Worldviews on Your Campus. Uh, and he's also going to be part of a special interfaith luncheon uh, on Thursday. Dr. Rahul Deep Gill, I really appreciate you making time in your schedule for this conversation. And uh, thank you so much. Safe travels to Carthage. Thank you. I look forward to being there. I look forward to seeing uh, all your listeners out at the talk.